Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for all audiences. We go into great detail with every case that we cover and do our best to bring viewers even deeper into the stories by utilizing disturbing audio and sound effects. Trigger warnings from the stories we cover may include violence, rape, murder, and offenses against children. This podcast is not for everyone. You have been warned. As we all know by now, school shootings are very prevalent here in America. It is currently May of 2023, and in the last five months alone, there have been 19 school shootings. And that's only in schools. We aren't even talking about the 217 mass shootings as a whole. It's alarming how every year gun violence is getting exponentially worse with no signs of improvement. But back in 2007, mass shootings were not a huge part of American culture just yet. It was a time where you didn't really have to think about where the exits were every time you walked into a room. Now, years earlier, the nation was rocked by the Columbine school shooting, but even then, that was considered a pretty rare, horrible tragedy, something that occurs every once in a blue moon. So on April 16th, 2007, as over 34,000 students and employees made their way over to Virginia Tech, I doubt mass shootings were at the forefront of anyone's mind. But unbeknownst to everyone, a 23-year-old student named Sungwee Cho was gearing up for the day that he had been planning for months. Inspired by the Columbine Massacre, this lone gunman was ready to take revenge on society. After he left his dorm room that day, he would go to campus, chain up the doors to Norris Hall, and commit the worst school shooting in American history. This is the story of the Virginia Tech Massacre. I'm Courtney Brown, And I'm Colin Brown, And you're listening to Murder in America. Sungwee Cho was born on January 18, 1984, in Seoul, South Korea, and from the beginning, he wasn't dealt the best hand. Sungwee had a slew of health issues following his birth that required multiple surgeries throughout the first few years of his life. In fact, when he was three, he had to have a procedure done on his heart, and according to his family, 
Afterwards, he did not like to be touched. It's also around this age where children start to form personalities. But Sung-wee never spoke, ever. He didn't speak to his parents or other children his age, and this quality seemed to follow him throughout his life. But in Korea, being quiet or reserved isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's preferred over being loud and over the top. However, the fact that Sung-wee really only spoke to his older sister was incredibly frustrating to his parents. His father's name is Seung tae Cho, who was described as a shy, introverted man. He worked in the oil fields in Saudi Arabia before his arranged marriage to Kim Hwang-im, Sung-wee's mother. She and her family fled North Korea during the Korean War and ended up in Seoul working as farmers. After their marriage, the two would go on to have two children, their daughter, Sun-kyung, and then their son, Sung-wee. Both parents were well aware that Sung-wee was different. The fact that he never spoke was alarming, but they just figured that he would eventually grow out of it. Plus, they both had a lot on their plate around this time. In the late 80s, the Cho family was working at a used bookstore in South Korea, and they were barely scraping by to make ends meet, so they started talking about moving to the United States. They already had some relatives who lived here, and they really wanted their children to have a better life than they did. It would take them about eight years to acquire a visa, but in 1992, they finally left South Korea to pursue the American dream. Now, Sung-wee was eight years old when he came to the United States, and he still barely ever spoke. He wouldn't get diagnosed until years later, but he had what's called selective mutism. Sung was so anxious in social situations, he wouldn't speak to anyone. Every once in a while, he would nod his head, but that was about it. So when they left South Korea, his family was hoping that moving would help him come out of his shell. His uncle would later tell the New York Times, quote, We thought that it would help the boy gain confidence if he moved to the United States' open society, end quote. But that wouldn't be the case. First, the Cho family lived in Maryland, then Detroit, before finally settling down in a suburb of Washington, D.C. called Centerville, which has a pretty big Korean community. They ended up buying a modest house, and both Sung Tai and Kim got jobs in the dry cleaning business. And by this point, Sung's physical health had gotten a lot better. He was no longer struggling with debilitating health issues, but he did still have crippling social anxiety. At Poplar Tree Elementary School, he rarely ever interacted with other students or teachers. But everyone just assumed it was because he was adjusting to life here in America. They eventually put him into an individualized education program, but it was clear that Sung-wee was not enjoying his time at school. A family friend would later say, quote, When he first came to America, he was about in the second grade. Every time he came home from school, he would cry and throw tantrums, saying he never wanted to go back to school. End quote. But obviously, he had to keep going. And throughout the year, Sungwi never made any friends. His classmates would try to speak with him, but he wouldn't answer. He just kept his head down and nodded when he needed to. His teachers would also try to speak with him, but he refused. And by this point, the administration at his school became so worried about his lack of social skills they encouraged his parents to take him to therapy. So in the summer of 1997, 
His parents brought him to the Center for Multicultural Human Services, which is a charity that helps multicultural minorities. The psychiatrist there that worked with Sungwi for nearly four years was Dr. James Griffith, and he would later tell the Virginia Tech documentary this. I think the thing that is the most notable that I always remember was the pain of his shyness. No eye contact, only nodding. He would break out in a sweat. He would seem to freeze. He was really unable to respond. A palpable pain with his anxiety. But even with years of therapy, Sungwi still barely ever spoke. So Dr. Griffith introduced him to art therapy, a form of therapy where you could communicate without having to talk. And according to Dr. Griffith, it seemed to be helping him. But unbeknownst to everyone, Sungwi had some really dark thoughts running through his mind. In April of 1999, the nation would be rocked by the horrific Columbine school shooting carried out by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. These two boys were angry with the world. So wanting revenge, they took guns to school and killed 13 people before turning the guns on themselves. And while most of the country was horrified by the acts of these two, there were a large group of people who became inspired, Sung-Wi being one of them. That year, he would write a paper about the Columbine School shooting and how he admired the shooters. Ben Baldwin, a former classmate, told ABC the following, I remember sitting in Spanish class with him, right next to him, and there being something written on his binder to the effect of, you know, F you all, I hope you all burn in hell, which I would assume meant us, the students. And the teacher saw that, and she came over and she got him, talked to him for a little bit, and then took him out of the classroom. The sudden fascination with Columbine was very concerning to the school officials. So they reached out to his parents and suggested a psychiatric evaluation. And it was then when Sung-Wee was diagnosed with major depression and selective mutism. And just as a little background, people with selective mutism can speak, but because of their social anxiety, it prevents them from speaking in certain situations. In Sung-Wee's case, he really only spoke to his parents and sister. People with this diagnosis are often very sad and lonely. And some even have a lot of internal anger because of their inability to communicate with others. But it's important to know that there's no link between selective mutism and violence. Now, Sung-Wi had selective mutism for his entire life, but he was just now getting this diagnosis in high school, which is very late. Most people in his position get therapy and treatment as small children. But because it went untreated for so long, a lot of damage had already been done. Now at Westfield High, where he went to high school, his peers knew him as the boy who would never speak. A former classmate named Patrick Song would later say, He just had this demeanor about him where he would just walk around and he would always face down. He would never look anyone in the face really. His eyes were always down, his shoulders down. He kind of had a puzzled, confused look on his face, but it was serious. It was really depressing to look at him. And now we're going to take our first ad break. Did you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? And that sleeping less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count, 
White blood cells protect our body against illness and diseases, fighting viruses, bacteria, and more. And not a lot of people realize this, but having a consistent nighttime routine is so important. So truly, a better tomorrow starts tonight. I know that with my career doing paranormal investigating, outside of the podcast on YouTube, my sleep schedule is extremely screwed up. Even tonight, I'm about to be staying up until 8 a.m. filming, so it's like I'm either sleeping well and I have this schedule or it's interrupted by my filming, so I totally understand this. And that's why we're happy to partner with Beam Dream to introduce their Dream Powder, their healthy hot cocoa for sleep. And today, our listeners get a special discount available on Beam's delicious Dream Powder and their best-selling healthy hot cocoa with only five calories. Better sleep has never tasted better. Dream contains natural sleep-promoting premium ingredients. It's triple lab-tested, contains no THC, and you actually wake up refreshed. Just mix Beam Dream Powder into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. So if you want to try Beam's best-selling Dream Powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com murder and use code murder at checkout. That's shopbeam.com murder and use code murder for up to 40% off. Now let's get back to today's story. There are some sources that say he faced some bullying in high school. Some kids would mock his poor English, while others called him trombone kid because he would often walk around alone carrying his trombone case. During his classes, the teachers would call on him, but he would refuse to answer. Some would even threaten to fail him for lack of participation, but he still refused to talk. And being this outcast only made him become more withdrawn. At home, he would mostly just play video games or shoot hoops outside by himself. And his parents, they worked most days of the week, so he didn't really have anyone to turn to. However, he did continue therapy up until his junior year and apparently he always showed up to his appointments and there was no indication that he was a danger to himself or others. He also took antidepressants for a while and his parents were pleased because they seemed to be working. Sungui even stopped going to therapy during his junior year because he felt he no longer needed it. Throughout his high school experience, he always made pretty good grades. According to his parents, by the end of his senior year, he seemed to be doing a lot better mentally as well. He had just gotten accepted into Virginia Tech and he was really excited for the next chapter of life. Now, his parents and counselors didn't think that Virginia Tech was the best choice because of how large of a school it is. They thought he would do better somewhere smaller and closer to home, but he was apparently dead set on going there and he seemed to have a newfound sense of confidence. So his parents trusted that he was making the right decision and that he would do well, but they couldn't have been more wrong. In August of 2003, Sungwee Cho would enroll into Virginia Tech along with 28,000 other students ready to embark on their college journey. Some of these students, however, would never live to see their graduation. Virginia Tech is located in southwestern Virginia near the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. The campus is huge, around 2,600 acres. It has 131 major buildings that are easily accessible to anyone. That summer, Sungwee moved out of his house in Centerville 
and made the 160-mile journey to Blacksburg, Virginia. His parents helped him move into his dorm that he shared with a guy named Andy Cook. And something strange that Andy noticed was that Sungwee was very distant and cold towards his parents. When most people are dropped off at college by their family, it's an emotional experience where you're hugging, saying your goodbyes. But when his parents dropped him off, they literally put his stuff in the room and just left. Which might be a cultural thing, but Andy said that it was definitely strange. Sungwee's first year of college went pretty well. He was majoring in business information systems, and he always attended class, made decent grades, and like always, he kept to himself and didn't make any friends. But his parents would come to visit him about once a week, so he did have some human interaction. And by the end of his freshman year, he would make it through without any issues. Arguably, the hardest part of that year was that he was struggling with acne. But he got on some medication for it, and other than that, everything seemed to be fine. That summer, he went back to Centerville to stay with his parents, and he had a lot of time on his hands. So he started dabbling in some hobbies, one being writing. Sung-wee would sit down every day and write his romantic fiction novel. And he was very passionate about this novel. So much so, he even considered doing it for his career. His parents were seeing all of this and they were really happy for him. It wasn't often that he became super passionate about things. By the end of that summer, he actually changed his major to English and he sent his novel over to the head of the Department of English. Her name was Lucinda Roy. She received Sungwee's novel through email, and at the end of the email, he wrote, quote, I don't know if there's a market or an audience for my writing because it's really silly and pathetic depending on how you look at it, but that's what I'm trying to find out, end quote. Lucinda said that it struck her as odd that someone would view their work in such a negative way. But after reading it, she said she was underwhelmed, to say the least. Lucinda said that the entire story was about romance and redemption, but Sung-wee just wasn't a great writer. So she responds to his email telling him to be careful jumping into a career path so quickly and to take some extra classes to make sure this is what he really wants. Now, that year wouldn't be the easiest for Sung-wee. He had always been a lot better at math than English, so his grades dropped a bit, but he was still dead set on making it as a writer. And I think that something he really liked about a writing career was that he could make money from the comfort of his own home. He wouldn't have to go into an office or interact with people, and that seemed really appealing. So even though he wasn't making the best grades, he continued to write, Later that year, he would send his novel to a publishing house in New York, but they rejected him, which was devastating to Sung-wee. He was going through what every writer goes through at some point in their career. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And while it is disappointing to have your work rejected, Sung-wee took it really hard. I think he expected them to really like his novel, but they didn't. His parents said that after he was rejected, he slipped into a depressive state. If you remember earlier, Sungwee was really close to his older sister, and she was really smart. She actually graduated from Princeton, so she even offered to help him edit the novel, but 
he didn't want her to read it. Now, at this point in the story, it's 2005, and Sungwi is starting his junior year at Virginia Tech. And it's around this time where we start to see him change for the worse. His roommate, Andy Cook, could never get through to Sungwi. He always tried to talk with him and be friendly, but as we know, Sungwi wasn't a very friendly type of guy. But one night, Andy decides to invite him to a frat party, trying to be nice. And surprisingly, Sungwi agrees to go. They are all drinking throughout the night, and after the frat party, they end up at this girl's house named Margaret Bowman. All of the guys are hanging out in her bedroom when all of a sudden, Sungwi pulls out a knife and he starts slowly stabbing her carpet over and over again in front of everyone. I'd imagine everyone was pretty alarmed when he did this, but no one would have ever known that Sungwi was truly violent. He barely ever spoke, so I'm sure they just blew it off. But Andy Cook, his roommate, had some other really strange stories about Sungwi. For one, he always talked about his imaginary girlfriend, and he even admitted that she was imaginary, but he had all these elaborate stories about her. For instance, her name was Jelly. She called him Spanky, and she was this supermodel from outer space. Andy thought that it was strange, but Sungwi was a strange guy, so he just kind of went along with it. But then one day, Andy came home from class, and Sungwi wouldn't let him inside of their dorm, because he said Jelly was visiting him. And now we're going to take our second ad break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. In life, it's really easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you. And sometimes it's hard to take a moment to think about what you need from yourself. I know that for me, I'm always focusing on what people online need from me, whether it's on my YouTube channel and what people want out of my videos, or it's Courtney and I thinking about the podcast and how we can make our show better. And it's easy to get lost in those thoughts. Sometimes it's hard to just focus on what I can be doing for myself to make my life easier. But that's why Courtney and I both love therapy, because therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. I've talked about this openly many times on the show in the past. I've been going to therapy for a long time. I have a therapist. I've benefited so greatly from going to therapy and talking about my own personal problems and thought processes and everything. And if you've never tried going to therapy, I cannot recommend it enough. It's truly a life-changing thing. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So, find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com MIA today to get 10% off your first month. Once again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot MIA to get 10% off your first month. And now, let's get back to today's story. He also made an instant messenger using the name Spanky Jelly, and he would use it to harass girls around campus. One was a girl named Jennifer Nelson. In November of 2005, Sungwi kept messaging her and somehow found out where she lived. Then, unannounced, he showed up at her dorm wearing these weird sunglasses, and he cornered her and repeatedly screamed, do you know who I am? 
Jennifer ended up calling the campus police and later that night, two officers would show up at Sungwi's dorm and tell him to stop contacting her. And he listened, but it was clear that he's showing some concerning behaviors. It was also around this time when he started going by the name Question Mark. In one of his poetry classes, there was a sign-in sheet at the front and instead of signing his actual name, he would just put a question mark. People in this class said that Sungwi would always sign in and then immediately go to the back of the class where he would put his hoodie on. And they said he was kind of rude. People would try to introduce themselves and be friendly, but he would always go out of his way to avoid them. The professor of this class was a woman named Nikki Giovanni, and one of their assignments was to write a piece of poetry and read it to the class. Now, normally, Sungwi was so shy he would have refused to read his work in front of people, but for whatever reason, he did. When it was his turn, he walked to the front of the class and began reading this very disturbing paper in front of everyone. Not too long ago, I had an epiphany about this class. What barbarians you people are. Now, tell me if I'm wrong, but I thought this was a poetry class. Yet everybody, everybody but me that is, spent the whole hour and a half talking about eating. It started with someone talking about eating baked beans every day overseas in some country. Then, before I knew it, the conversation turned into a type of conversation of animal massacre butcher shop. Someone began talking about chopping off turtles' heads, dipping them into eel sauce and eating them cooking lion's balls deep fried and thin sliced and eating them with ketchup and chewing on a nice fat bird's head with a nice bottle of wine. Then that somebody said she doesn't do that anymore because the animals she ate are now her friends, yet she who the one who deliciously, joyfully gobbled them up like one jolly clown. That's like a robber stealing $20 million from a bank and years later haughtily apologizing for stealing the money without returning any of it. Yeah, as long as he's sorry, as if... I don't know who said that, but that somebody is in this room. That somebody sits in this vicinity, right there to be exact, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know which uncouth, low-life planet you come from, but you disgust me. In fact, you all disgust me. Because as far as I can remember, somebody jumped in and said, Have you eaten a snake? They taste so good. I love snakes. Who said that? Who, wh- what's wrong with you? You want to get leprosy or something? As if that wasn't bad enough, she went on. Ostriches are good too. My uncle owns an ostrich farm and every summer we murder a few of them and we barbecue them on the grill rare. Possums are pretty good too. You should kill them and eat them because they go through your trash and make a mess. You should just kill them and eat them. Then another person jumped in and said, If you own a horse, you should keep him locked up in a cage so his muscles don't develop. It's much easier to chew him that way. Before I could shake my head and catch a breath to all of this genocidic talk of innocent animals, certain individuals ran out of the class to not throw up on the bathroom floor, but to get something to eat. Hey, you guys, you're making me hungry. Who said that? You know exactly who you are. Yes, I'm talking to you, 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 all of you. You low-life barbarians make me sick to the stomach that I want to barf all over my new shoes. If you despicable human beings who are all disgraces to human race keep this up, before you know it, you'll turn into cannibals, eating little babies, your friends, siblings, your parents, grandparents, and your classmates. That's it. I'm getting the hell out before I blink and get eaten alive by you barbarous, uncivilized monsters. I hope you all burn in hell for mass murdering and eating all those little harmless animals. Imagine you're sitting in class and someone reads that out loud. I would be incredibly uncomfortable to say the least. 
And that was the case for everyone, including his professor. Following this, she would send Sung-Wi an email that read, quote, Mr. Cho, your paper of October 10 is disturbing to me. From the beginning of this semester, I had the impression that you did not wish to be a part of this class. You usually have a ball cap pulled over your eyes as if you were asleep. And when I have asked, as I did several times, for you to at least push it back a little bit, you did not comply. I'm not sure why you enrolled in this class, but I feel like I'm not being a help to you either through your writing or sparking your imagination. If you would prefer some other creative writing professor, I will be more than pleased to do all my power to help you make the change even at this late date. If you feel you have enrolled in error, I will be pleased to allow you to withdraw with no prejudice. I think you need to consider whether or not you wish to continue with me in this class, and if so, make time so that you and I can discuss what steps you will need to complete to be brought up to date. Sincerely, Nikki Giovanni. Now, clearly this professor was uncomfortable with sung In the email, she's basically begging him to drop the class, but he wouldn't. In fact, he responded to her email saying, quote, you can't make me, end quote. Then the following week, in that same class, a female student approaches Giovanni and says that Sungui was putting his phone underneath her desk and taking pictures of her legs. And it was here where Giovanni had had enough. So she reaches out to Lucinda Roy, who is the head of the English department, to see if he could be removed from her class. She was so uncomfortable, she would later say, quote, I was willing to resign before I would continue with him, end quote. Dr. Lucinda Roy notified several of the school officials about sung behavior, and the Dean of Student Affairs agreed that he could be removed from the class as long as they found another class for him. And they also had to have a meeting with sung to discuss his behavior, So Lucinda Roy sent him an email to set it up. A few hours later, Sung-Wi responds, It's obvious that I'm in a lot of trouble. Yes, I'll come Wednesday and get yelled at or whatever you want to do to me. The meeting was scheduled for October 19, 2005. And in attendance was Dr. Lucinda Roy and Cheryl Ruggiero. The notes from this meeting read this. I am struck immediately by Sung Cho's physical aspect. He has a choice of seating. The chair opposite to mine, close to Lucinda's desk or the sofa, and he chooses the sofa as far as possible from either of us. Understandable. When I'm introduced and shake his hand, his hand is very sweaty and remains straight, does not clasp my hand. When he sits, his arms are splayed unnaturally down by his sides. On the armrest and a pillow, open, stiff, hands not resting on the surfaces. He hardly moves at all, his face or his body, either when listening or speaking. He wears a baseball cap pulled very low and reflective sunglasses. His voice is so low that it's difficult to hear. Throughout, Cho's responses come more slowly than in a normal conversation, and most are monosyllables, end quote. During the meeting, Sung-Wi said that he recognized his paper was inappropriate, but it was supposed to be satire. He said that he was just making fun of his classmates, and it was supposed to be a joke. At this point in the meeting, Dr. Roy asked him to remove his sunglasses. 
Cheryl noted, quote, At this point, Lucinda asked if he would remove his sunglasses. She makes a bit of a joke of it, about not wanting to go on seeing her own reflection. Cho takes a long time to respond, but he does remove them. It's a very distressing sight, since his face seems very naked and blank without them. It's a great relief to be able to read his face, though there isn't much there. Lucinda asks if taking off the sunglasses has been terrible for him. He shakes his head. End quote. At this point in the meeting, they bring up the pictures he took of the female student's legs. Sungwi claimed that he loved photography and that he took pictures of a lot of different things. But he did understand the severity of the situation and he agreed he would not take any more unwanted photos of female students. At the end of the meeting, Dr. Roy gave him two options. Return to Nikki's poetry class and explain to everyone that his paper was a joke, or he could drop the class and work independently with Lucinda Roy herself. Sungwi remained silent for a few minutes before he responded. I don't know. Dr. Roy said that she would give him two days to decide. She also recommended that he see the campus counselor. It was clear that he was very shy and depressed, and she truly wanted him to get help. But again, there was a long moment of silence before he uttered, I don't know. Dr. Roy gave him the name of the counselor on campus, and she asked him, Would you be willing to speak with him? Sure. Both Dr. Roy and Cheryl couldn't help but notice that throughout the meeting, Sungwi appeared to be detached and emotionless. But as he was walking out of the meeting, he began to cry. Dr. Roy, feeling horrible, ran out and gave him a copy of her book, hoping to make him feel better. She said when she gave it to him, his hands were trembling. Now, following this meeting, she and Sungwi would meet once a week for their one-on-one class together. And during this time, he would write a poem titled, A Boy Named Loser. It read, A boy named Loser walks off the sidewalk, shudders into his house, and lays his weary head to sleep and dream. In his dream, he lives two lives, because in this world, he has no life, no class, no friends, just a moron in this world. During its long hours in the real world, it's no surprise he is loser. Everyone knows. Too bad. They say, only if he had a life. Under the bright, cruel sun, he hauls his feet into his house. Thinks about the other two lives. Keeps on dreaming. Daydream. What to do. What to say but dream. That's what losers do in this world. Where normal guys live their happy lives, worry-free and be themselves. Unlike loser. A normal guy throws parties at his house, but not loser. He has no life. Be happy. Be normal. Get a life, he says to himself. He can only in his dream. In Loser's little mind, he brings over a girl to this house. Only if he could do that in the real world. Loser. What can I say? That's what losers do. Loser. Only if Loser could live his lives. Something Loser can't even do. Lives those lives and be normal and actually have a life. You know why he can't? He's Loser. With everything he longs for, all he can do is dream trapped in this world, in this wronged world. Nothing to do but drag his heavy feet back into the house. All alone in his little house, he likes to think he's living his lives in his own safe little world. No one tells him, loser, get a life. No one gives him the hand gesture in his dream. No one calls him loser. Darn straight. This boy really is loser. 
loser with no life, and he knows it. But he, what can he do, likes to live in his pathetic dream, drowning in his quirky little house anyway. My God, what a loser. He also wrote a lot of love stories about his imaginary girlfriend, Jelly, and they were very descriptive. It's clear that he desperately wanted to be loved and touched by a woman, something he hadn't experienced. One of the poems he wrote was titled, Hair Poem. I wish I could touch Jelly's hair, so perfect and pretty. I just want to grab them and play, her hair and me right here. I want to get to know her, her irresistible hair. Her hair is so divine and beautiful, like the Greek goddess of hair. And now we're going to take our third and final ad break. We've talked about ButcherBox on the show before, but of all the services that we've recommended, we cannot recommend ButcherBox enough to y'all online. So basically with ButcherBox, you get a selection of high quality meats and seafoods that you can trust shipped right to your door. You can get 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. It's all humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, and truly, the cuts of meat and the seafood are delicious. Connor, Courtney's brother, and I all made steaks last week, and also Connor made some really badass ribs using our butcher box cuts, and the food is just incredible. The actual quality of the meat is absolutely unparalleled when it comes to other uh, services that ship food and ingredients and, and stuff like that to your door. And it's so easy. The butcher box actually comes right to your front door, so you don't have to go to the grocery store. And the meals are affordable, obviously. You get free shipping always. And you can curate your own custom box plan and get whatever cuts of meat or seafood that you want delivered right to your door. So today, for our listeners, ButcherBox is giving us a special deal. Sign up today using code MIA to receive ground beef for a year, plus $20 off your first order. That's two pounds of ground beef free in every box for a year, plus $20 off your first order when you sign up at ButcherBox.com MIA and use code MIA. And now let's get back to today's story. Sungwi would go on to write many more poems and stories, but to be honest, they are really bad, so we won't bore you by reading them. But it's around this time when Sungwi starts to harass more women on campus. On December 6th, 2005, a female student named Christina Lilizu complained to her resident advisor that Sungwi had sent her derogatory messages under the alias question mark. And as it turns out, many people had been sending in complaints about him. The resident advisor, Lisa Varga, actually sent an email to her supervisor with a long list of complaints against him, including one that said he may have a weapon in his room. A few days after this, another female student sent in a complaint about him. This time, it was Margaret Bowman, the girl who witnessed him stabbing her carpet with a knife. Apparently, he had been messaging her, and when she didn't respond, he walked to her dorm and wrote on a marker board that was hanging on her door. He didn't write anything too disturbing, but it was a quote from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Margaret contacted the Virginia Tech Police Department and filed a formal complaint, requesting that he have no further contact with her. 
The campus police once again showed up at his dorm, but he wasn't home. So they left a message with his roommates for him to call the department. Later that afternoon, he called them back, but Sungwee claimed that he didn't do it, Shakespeare did. So clearly he's spiraling. Later that night, he sends his roommate a message saying, I might as well kill myself right now. And concerned, the roommate reaches out to the Virginia Tech Police Department and he tells them that Sungwee wants to kill himself. So they immediately come by his dorm and take him to a hospital where he is detained there overnight. During his stay, he was evaluated and in his notes, they reported that he was, quote, mentally ill and in need of hospitalization, but then they release him. They did issue a court order that he had to attend their outpatient program, but he never went. And even though it was court ordered, no one ever followed up to make sure he was going. His parents were also never notified of his evaluation and hospital stay. And because of his order to receive outpatient treatment, rather than be committed to a psychiatric facility, his name was never reported to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. If he had been committed, his name would have been taken down and this would have flagged him when he went to purchase guns later on. But throughout this whole experience, Sungwee felt betrayed. Andy, his roommate, was really the only friend he had. And by calling the police on him, he felt betrayed. By this point, Andy was kind of afraid of Sungwee. Not only had he been acting strange towards women, but one night, Andy woke up to Sungwee taking pictures of him while he slept. So by this point, there's an obvious strain in their relationship. Following this, Sungwee would never tell anyone about his thoughts and feelings ever again. From here, he just buried it all within. And with isolation came resentment. Like a volcano, the pressure within him was mounting. In one of his poetry classes, Sungwee would write, This thing, my life, all in agony of hell, of torture, in years of bludgeoning torment, tiny nuisances, the disgust eyes, dirty frowns, and red fingers pointing at me, feeling all the patheticness and humiliation. Good Christ, rip me apart to shrivels. Eat me to help me see a better day and salvage this decaying thing for myself. Sungwee was angry with the world. In April of 2006, he was enrolled in a technical writing course with Professor Carl Bean. Carl confronted Sungwee outside of class and suggested he drop the course because of the inappropriate writing assignments he had turned in. And apparently, Sungwee followed him all the way back to his office, yelling at him in the hallway. In another one of his classes that semester, Sungwee was enrolled in a creative writing course with Professor Bob Hickok, and he had a few issues with Sungwee as well. Like every other class, he refused to participate in class discussions, and the work he turned in was extremely violent. On February 10th, 2006, Bob emailed Dr. Roy about his behavior. The email read, Lucinda Seung Cho is a student in my 3704. He's an English major and a junior. He can't or won't talk. Not when called on in class. This is pretty clearly tough for him, and not even one-on-one. -on -one. When I spoke to him about this, 
He literally made no sound. The most I could get him to do was nod, and this was barely perceptible. I then asked him to tell me what's up in an email. He didn't do this. I emailed him, and his response was, I don't know, I have trouble talking, I don't know. I emailed again, and again told him that, minus any conversation, it would be almost impossible for him to pass the course. His response was that he'd try to talk. Is his name familiar? What should I do in a case like this? Bob. And he wouldn't be the last professor that would alert the school to Sungwi's behavior. I've lost count at this point, but there are a handful of professors that were deeply concerned about his well-being. And it's really horrible that after all of these emails, still nothing was done. In one of his writing classes in 2006, he would write a disturbing story foreshadowing the Virginia Tech massacre. In the story, the main character's name was Bud. And it starts with Bud waking up early, getting dressed in dark clothing, sunglasses, and a strappy vest with lots of pockets. When he arrives at school that day, he noticed that all of the students are smiling, laughing, and embracing each other. Everyone looks in Bud's direction, but no one cares to interact with him. An excerpt of the story read, So I hate this. I hate all these frauds. I hate my life. This is it. This is when you goddamn people die with me. But unlike Sung Wee's actions later that year, Bud never acted on his thoughts. And the story ends with him driving away in a stolen car with a gothic woman. One classmate named Stephen Davis told the New York Times that when he finished reading his play, he looked at his roommate and said, quote, this is the kind of guy who's going to walk into a classroom and start shooting people, end quote. And in 2007, that's exactly what Sung Wee would do. It was also the year he was set to graduate. But while many of his peers discussed their future goals and job opportunities, his mind remained in a very dark place. His parents tried to help him find jobs, but he didn't want their help. It seems like he knew finding a job wouldn't matter because he had other plans. He was going to shoot and kill as many people as he could at Virginia Tech. In early 2007, Sung Wee started going by another personality named Axe Ishmael. Sung Wee was just a shy, mediocre student with no friends or respect from his peers. But Axe Ishmael was this strong, mean person who didn't care about what others thought of him. It was like he could step into the role of Axe Ishmael and be the person he always wanted to be. On February 2nd, 2007, Sung Wee would go online and order his first handgun, a 22 caliber Walther P-22 semi-automatic pistol from a federally licensed firearms dealer in Green Bay, Wisconsin. The company was TGSCOM Incorporated, and they shipped the gun to J&D Pawnbrokers in Blacksburg, Virginia, a store located right across the street from Virginia Tech's campus. And it was here where he completed the transaction and picked up the gun. Then, on March 12, 2007, he went to the Roanoke Regional Airport in Roanoke, Virginia, and he rented a van from Enterprise Rent-A-Car. He would keep the van for about a month, and when he got inside of it, his Axe Ishmael persona would come out. Sung Wee would dress in dark clothing. He would put on these dark gloves and a bulletproof vest. Then he would get into the back of the van and set up a camera. Pictures of him from this time show him holding a gun. 
Another shows him wielding a hammer above his head with this mean look on his face. He desperately wanted to be this mean and scary person that people were afraid of, when in reality, he was a shy man who could barely speak above a whisper. But here is the audio of some things he recorded of himself while in this van. I didn't have to do this. I could have left. I could have fled. But no, I will no longer run. If not for me, for my children, for my brothers and sisters, the chief I did it for them. You had a hundred billion chances and ways to have avoided today, but you decided to spill my blood. You forced me into a corner and gave me only one option. The decision was yours. Now you have blood on your hands that will never wash off. You sadistic stops. I may be nothing but a piece of You have vandalized my heart, raped my soul, and torched my conscience. You thought it was one pathetic void life you were extinguishing. Thanks to you, I die like Jesus Christ to inspire generations of the weak and the defenseless people. Do you know what it feels like to be spit on your face and have trash shoved down your throat? Do you know what it feels like to dig your own grave? Do you know what it feels like to have your throat slashed from ear to ear? Do you know what it feels like to be torched alive? Do you know what it feels like to be humiliated and be impaled, impaled upon on a cross and left to bleed to death for your amusement? You have never felt a single ounce of pain your whole life. Did you want to inject as much misery in our lives as you can, just because you can? You had everything you wanted. Your Mercedes wasn't enough, you brats. Your golden necklaces weren't enough, you snobs. Your trust fund wasn't enough. Your vodka and cognac weren't enough. All your debaucheries weren't enough. Those weren't enough to fulfill your hedonistic needs. You had everything. You just loved crucifying me. You loved inducing cancer in my head, terrorizing my heart, and raping my soul all this time. When the time came, I did it. I had to. As you can tell, Sungwee was angry with the world and he was ready to take his revenge. On March 13th, 2007, the day after he bought his first gun, he bought a second gun. This one was a nine millimeter Glock 19 from Roanoke Firearms. He also purchased 50 full metal jacket practice rounds. When he entered the store, he presented his US permanent residency card and his Virginia driver's license with no problems. A background check was performed and there were no records of mental health issues, so he was required to wait the 30 days between gun purchases as required by law. However, under federal law, Sungwee should have never been able to purchase a gun after that overnight stay in the psychiatric hospital in 2005. But because it wasn't on his record, the firearm store employees had no idea that he was a potential threat. To them, he seemed like a normal college student with no red flags. The price of the nine millimeter Glock was $571 that he put on his credit card. And it was also around this time when Sungwee rented a motel room and hired a dancer for a one hour performance. On March 22nd, Sung Wee took his 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol to an indoor shooting range where he spent about an hour practicing with his new gun. After this practice, 
he went back to his dorm and got on eBay to purchase two 10-round magazines for his pistol from Elk Ridge Shooting Supplies in Idaho. The following day, he got back on eBay and ordered three additional 10-round magazines from another online seller. Then, on March 31st, he went to Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart to buy cargo pants, sunglasses, ammunition, magazines, a hunting knife, and chains. Slowly but surely, Sungwee's plans to shoot up Virginia Tech were coming together. He had the weapons, the ammunition, the outfit he planned to wear that day, and the chains he would use to tie the doors together so no one could escape the building. He also made many more videotapes that he planned to send to NBC the morning of the shooting. On April 7th, 2007, Sung Wee was pulled over by the Virginia Tech police for going 44 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone. A court date was set for May 23rd, 2007, but he never planned on making that court date. And in the weeks leading up to the massacre, his roommate started to notice a change in him. He cut his hair really short, a military style buzz cut. He started going to the gym really late at night and waking up earlier in the mornings. And although they never really got to know him, he was quieter than usual. Sung Wee Cho's plan was coming together and he was more than ready to carry out the attack on Virginia Tech's campus. On April 14th, two days before the shooting, a faculty member noticed an Asian male with a hoodie pulled over his head in Norris Hall the very building where he would carry out the attack. That same night, another student would later report that she saw one of the main doors in Norris Hall chained together. It's speculated that Sung Wee was responsible, like he was practicing for the main event. Then on April 15th, he placed a call to his parents. They didn't know it at the time, but it was a goodbye of sorts. They would later claim that there were no signs their son was distressed. It was just like any other phone call. And that's the scary thing about these people. To the outside, they seem normal, just months away from graduation. But in reality, Sung Wee Cho was about to carry out the worst school shooting in American history. The students and employees of Virginia Tech went to bed that night completely unaware that their lives were about to change forever. And 32 of those people would never live to see another day after April 16th, 2007. Hey everybody, it's Colin here. Thank you for tuning in to another week of Murder in America. Once again, like we always say, Courtney and I are so happy and so proud that our show has grown to the level that it's at right now and we are just so shocked that we have so many of you out there listening and tuning in every single week we're truly blessed to have this amazing family of listeners and friends online so yeah thank you all so much but i want to shout out our new patrons this week Alyssa Bezio, Chesney Covey, Kim Sands Chabot, Tyler Ishcomer, Phoenix Josephine, Ava Guckenberger, Jesse Molina, Timothy Berry, Taylor Salazar, and John Kale. Thank you all for signing up to become patrons. It's always shocking to see how many new patrons we have every week. 
And yeah, thank you once again. I, and I'm sorry if I ever slaughter anybody's name when I'm reading out your little shout out. But if you want your name read at the end of an episode or you don't like the ads in the show, just head to patreon.com and search up Murder in America because on our Patreon, we post the ad-free version of every episode as soon as it goes live on all streaming platforms. So once again, if you don't like the ads, just head to Patreon. Um, something else that you can do for Courtney and I that would be really amazing is if you have an iPhone, head to the podcasts app and go leave us a five-star review. Tell us what you love about Murder in America because there's nothing that makes our day more than reading what you guys have to say about the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at Murder in America where we post photos from every case that we cover here on the show. And next week, we're going to be back with the finale to this story. It's a really sad, sad story. But until then, I hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you for listening and I will see you on the next one.